Well, hey guys, thank you all so much uh, for joining me and my dear friend, my former teammate, the best man in my wedding, uh, who is currently uh, the lead pastor uh, of uh, the Gateway Frisco campus. As you know, uh, Gateway is a mega church in the Dallas Metroplex, and uh, Jelani has been the, the lead pastor of the Frisco campus now for uh, a couple years. Uh, he's been there at Gateway for a number of years, a decade. And, uh, and man, uh, Jelani, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time and sitting down and uh, agreeing to have this conversation um, uh, this uh, conversation that many, many feel like can get awkward at times, uh, can get uncomfortable um, at times, but we're going to dive into this conversation and talk a little bit about, man, what is, what is going on in our country right now? What has been going on in our country for a very long time? And, uh, and just create some conversation uh, uh, around that. But hey, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for taking time out and, and being here with us. Well, absolutely, Phil. I, let me say to you, just on the very front of this, um, you know, I appreciate that this wasn't my idea. This was your idea. In, in other words, you pursued having this conversation. And I want to tell you how much uh, that means to me that you would actually say, I want to pursue this dialogue and have this conversation and broach a difficult topic. And so I appreciate you pursuing that. And, and you're doing this really in an effort to pastor people well. And so part of what I feel like we get to do as pastors is offer perspective. And so you're pers pursuing perspective. And so I just want to tell you, uh, I appreciate that this is not just because of our friendship, but it's because you love people, you care about people, you want to pastor well, and you want to help people. So I'm honored to be here and very very thankful for uh, this opportunity well uh, thank you thank you for, for that and and I know that this is going to really help um, our church the people in our church uh, do exactly what you said just give us a, a, a fresh perspective give us a new lens to see some of these issues through um, let's just first talk about man whenever we start talking about race prejudice racism reconciliation right uh, the, these things can can feel uncomfortable and 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 awkward can we just talk for a second why is that why why is culture and race and racism prayer why are these such difficult topics for us to talk about well i think uh philip part of the reason that it's it's very difficult in fact there i think there's a number of reasons that kind of crescendo together you've got one side of this that um there is a long history uh, with a lot of pain, a lot of injustice. And in some ways, if you think about just America in general, part of the, the black eye on America, if you look back historically, has to do with slavery. And whether you want to go to Native Americans or whether you want to go to African Americans, uh, there is a level of pain associated with our history. And anytime you begin to broach a, a topic that is very sensitive, people feel like they need to walk on eggshells. Uh, then when you pull together uh, 
a, a desire to have a dialogue and you've got um, varying perspectives on what happened, what didn't happen, what the conversation should look like, it becomes very uncomfortable because we don't, we don't want to hurt each other's feelings. Uh, we, we don't want to step on toes. We don't want to make the situation worse. And so I think about my white brothers and sisters specifically. I mean, I, I know I've, I've had some of them that have sent me a text message uh, to ask like how Jelani, I'm, I'm about to communicate something this weekend to my congregation, um, but I, I don't know what to say. And I'm even sorry that I'm sending you this text message because that may be hurtful. And so their concern is because we don't know what to say. We don't want to say the wrong thing and we don't want to hurt feelings. That is difficult uh, specifically for my white brothers and my white sisters. Uh, then you've got on, on the African-American side where when we broach this topic, because there's such pain, because oftentimes what we see has triggered us, um, Sometimes there's this sense of we don't want to come across as the angry black man or black woman. We don't want to pound the table. We don't want to continue a, a stereotype or a connotation that every time we speak, it has something to do with race or injustice. And so for us, we kind of uh, move at this slowly as well. And so when you take these two groups of people that are going, well, I I know there's a lot of pain around this, and so I want to ease into this. I'm not sure what I'm going to say is right or appropriate, and so, but I don't want to hurt feelings, so I'm not sure what to do. And then you've got the Black people going, well, uh, I want to talk about it, but I also realize that sometimes there's a stigma that we're angry Black people, and I don't want to perpetuate that. And then you have just this combination that comes together where we just don't understand each other. So mm -hmm. at the end of the day, like, we could have the conversation and sometimes that, well, you just don't understand and you just don't understand. And so we feel like we go nowhere. And then I think, honestly, Philip, there's probably a part of this that people are exhausted with the conversation. Mm. That, that there is a part where we go, are we going to end up at the same place where we're just talking? Or are we going to see the needle move? Or is there going to be real forward progress? And so I, I really think that it's, it's, uh, a, again, I go back to saying to you, thank you for pursuing the conversation uh, because it's it's very important that we can dialogue about this, especially in the church. But I think those are some of the the issues surrounding why this is a sensitive topic. We don't want to hurt each other's feelings. We don't want to say the wrong thing. We don't want to come across a certain way. And so therefore we sit in silence. That, that's great, man. Let, let's Let's talk for just a second about the difference of perspective between our white Americans and black Americans right now, the difference of perspective when it comes to this racial tension, because when we, when we come into these conversations, when we even get into our own thoughts, so much of our own thoughts and conversations, it comes from so much of our past experiences, right? We bring so much of what we've heard, what we've seen modeled, what all these things into these conversations. Um, and so, Obviously, the perspective as we as we are having this conversation, perspective is different. Can you just talk through a little bit of some of the differences that you have seen in this the perspective over the racial tension? Yeah, so I, I think there's a overarching. So I won't say this is everybody, but in general, uh, you could argue that white people see racism as an individual issue. In other words, uh, I'm not a racist, maybe that person is a racist, that individual is a racist, but, but not me. Um, where African-Americans would, would see racism in general, wouldn't say this is all African-Americans, but, but they would say, uh, listen, we see it as an institutional issue, that there are systems 
that are set up to hold African-Americans down. You could actually see this even in the definitions of racism. So certain definitions, uh, when you hear people talk about it, they will actually say that racism is a, a sense of a superiority or the inferiority of another race. <clears throat> Not wrong, you can find it in the dictionary. But, but you will also hear maybe sociologists say that actually racism has to do with the distribution of power, that there is a, a system set up that continues to keep a specific group of people in power and suppress another group of people. And so even in that definition, you actually hear individual and institutional, okay, wow. Um, wow. in the definition. And so when you talk about these things, my white friends, again, would go, man, I... I'm not a racist, Jelani. I'm trying. I'm, I'm trying to do my very best here to help out. And 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 then African Americans would go, well, yeah. But the reason why we're so upset when we see some of these issues is it's not just you. It's it's actually a system. It's an institution. So you think about the criminal justice system, and I think statistically they would say that one out of every three black men will spend some time in jail at some point in their lives. One out of every three. We all know that, that, um, that black men or black people in general, when it comes to drugs, they usually get harsher sentences. Uh, so just think about this. You, you got one out of every three black men are going to go to jail at some point. When they come out of uh, prison, it's difficult to get a job. They make lower wages. It continues a cycle of poverty. Well, in the cycle of poverty, you end up with a school system now that is underfunded. The teachers aren't so great. They don't have the proper things that they need. And so you've got this cycle that is going on. And so it feels, okay, well, this is the school that I went to. It impacts where I can go to college or if I can go to college and where I end up there. And, and then it impacts where I buy my house and where I live and the socioeconomic status and then what my kids experience. And so ultimately it feels feels like there's this system that's set up that continues to keep African-Americans um, down. And so when we talk about this issue of race, there is this sense that, yeah, there's an individual piece, but then there's also an institutional piece. And, and that is, I think, sometimes a differing perspective of when we approach this topic. Man, I think that's so good. And I think in just the conversations that I've had this week, um, I mean, this week we are uh, dealing with, I mean, one, one of the, the most horrific things that I have ever seen in, in my life, um, uh, just uh, horrific, um, what happened there in Minneapolis uh, with George Floyd. And, um, and now I, I think what you're saying, like now I'm, I'm seeing some things that, that uh, some patterns from these conversations about the whole individual versus broader picture right and and uh maybe white americans want to make it about a bad cop right like about this situation and i think right now like right we're dealing with with uh the riots the protests and i think that for white americans for so many obviously not speaking for everyone but but for so many it, it's about this individual issue so they can't understand why why are you burnt why are you why are people burning a city down why are people riding and protesting over this one person but it's like no you're, you're missing the point it's not about george floyd mm -hmm. it's about a much bigger picture and i think that when 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 you you know when whenever we have a perspective that is narrow and individualistic 
we we can't see the bigger picture of what is happening and then that creates the frustration because the the the, the white community is saying oh it's about the individual well, we're saying no it's about it's about the whole the whole system the whole community this is not about one instant this is about the hundreds and the thousands of instances that have happened over the last few years and and decades right and it's like it's all coming and I think when we just when we just call a timeout and sit there in that perspective, we go, "Oh, okay, it makes a little bit more sense about what we're what we're seeing right now." Could you just talk about that for a second? Yeah, I, Phil, I think that's a great way to put it. The way I would say it is, um, one side sees this as the fruit of a bad cop, and another side sees it as the fruit of a bad system. So, so yeah, from an individual perspective, that's a bad cop. And let me say this, and I think you and I have talked about this before, man, I have got friends that are police officers, uh, law enforcement agents that yeah. are wonderful, amazing men and women of God. And so this is not a, uh, a, um, overlying piece of, of us communicating anything negative towards police officers. There's some good cops out there. However, though, when we talk about this again, that there's a fruit of an individual versus this is a system. And so in other words, this individual act is actually an undercurrent that has been flowing for a long time. And all of a sudden the volcano erupted. Mm, yeah. We caught it on video, but the lava has been flowing the entire time. And so uh, it, it is like a, a, if, if my little brother uh, is going to school and every day he's getting bullied, he comes home, he says, you know, Jelani, so-and-so is bullying me, man. And, and it's just so difficult. He tells his teacher, I feel like I'm getting bullied at school and nothing really happens. And this goes on day after day after day after day. And then let's just say three months down the road, one day the bully comes in and pushes my brother. And all of a sudden my brother snaps. I mean, he goes off and just pummels the guy. Well, here, here's what's going to happen. We're calling, you know, principal, everybody, let's get my little brother off of this guy. Why did you do this? How could you do something? And it seems like this big scene is because my little brother just beat up the bully. And, and so my little brother gets in trouble because of what he did on that day. However, for three months, this bully has been picking on him. And what you see is the fruit of a guy who for three months has been taking this and taking this. And all of a sudden he goes, I can't stand it anymore. That is what we're talking about, Philip, that, that it is not just about this particular incident. There's been an undercurrent and all of a sudden there is upheaval now that takes place. In fact, I, I was listening to somebody recently and, and just talking about the, the different perspectives. He said, you know, if, if you look at it, let's just say that a white guy was jogging down the street and two black men jumped him, shot him with a shotgun, and he died. Immediately, we would go, this is complete injustice. This is wrong. Let's get those guys. Let's arrest them. Let's take them down. Let's do that. You flip the narrative, though, and there's a black man jogging down the street and two guys jump on him. Here's what we say. Well, we don't have the whole story yet. Let's find out what's going on here. That is a difference of perspective when you look at a situation. On one, we're going, that's just wrong. On the other one, we go, 
hey, let's get more perspective here. This is the clash that we're talking about. And again, there's an undercurrent of, of I mean, think about this, Philip. My parents, let me go back, my dad specifically, he drank out of a colored water fountain. He sat in the back of movie theaters. He rode in the back of buses, okay? This is my father. We're not talking 18th century here. We're talking my dad. And so we, when we think about racism, we think about prejudice, listen, this stuff is not that long ago. There's an undercurrent that's still been going on. I think it was 1968, you have the civil rights law, but that changes laws that doesn't change hearts. And so we're dealing with a perpetuation of things that have flown for years. And when we have incidents like this, it's basically the volcano erupting. And now we see the spillover of what's been going on for a long time. Let, let's, let's make this personal for just a moment. Yep. Because we talk about a volcano erupting. We, we, we see something like what happens on the street in Minneapolis. We see something that happens on a street in Georgia. We see those things that, that, that happen. Tell me, what, what does that do for you? Because, I, I mean, I, of course, I, I've, got, I've got the advantage because I, I, I know you and, and I know some of the things that, that you have faced and you have been through. Why, why don't you just talk to us for a moment about some of your personal experiences when it comes to discrimination, when it comes to prejudice, and how, how does that, your personal experience, bleed over into when you see something like this, of this magnitude, what does that do, maybe even just like to the volcano in you? Yeah, so I would say, so I'll speak, when I saw what transpired in Georgia, to be very frank with you, Philip, uh, I was fairly calloused. And, and so you and I even talked about this uh, when we looked at what happened in Georgia and then what uh, transpired um, in Minneapolis. You told me you cried yourself to sleep. I mean, yep. you, you literally wept. And, and, and I just want you to know, again, um, hearing you communicate that, and I'm sure we'll get to it a little bit later, uh, but, but to hear your heart broken through that as you thought about your friends and thought about people you love was, was really affirming for me. Uh, but you, you cried. You cried yourself to sleep. I watched the first video, and I went to sleep. Hmm. Because there was a level of, of callousness where I'm going, you know what, of course that's what happened. And it's not the first time, it won't be the last time, and here we go again. But, but there's a, a level of, of callousness in that forms, and, and I don't even know, to be honest with you, I don't know if some of that has formed for survival, so I can just deal with it and keep moving forward, but I literally went, here we go again, um, wow, okay. Uh, and then, and then, and so, so for me, there was a level of hardness there. Uh, the other thing that happened in, in watching the videos after I, I processed a little bit, I was triggered because, and this is just Philip, probably a month and a half ago that my wife and I had this conversation. She, she, before I got, I live in a predominantly white neighborhood and, uh, you know, I've been living here for three and a half years. I usually get up in the morning a couple times a week and 
I will go and walk and pray in my neighborhood. Now, I wouldn't say it's because I'm so spiritual. I would say I like Twizzlers and chocolate covered almonds. And when you go into quarantine, brother, and you start eating that stuff, you got to get moving. So I'm trying to get right. Uh, so, but I, I go and walk in my neighborhood. Well, one particular morning a few weeks ago, I get up and it's it's uh, colder outside. So I'm like, I'm, you know, I need to put on a hoodie. I don't have hair. I'm going to put on a hoodie and go outside uh, to walk and pray. And I'll never forget, Philip, just before I walked out the door, my wife grabbed me and said, are you, are you sure you want to wear that? And I, I went, it's cold outside. Yes, I, I want to do it. No, she said, are you, are you sure you want to wear that? And, and I'm thinking babe, this is our neighborhood that we've lived in three and a half years, and I'm going to walk and pray like I normally do. But her concern is that, Jelani, if you put a hoodie on in our neighborhood, they may not recognize you, and there may be trouble for you. That's not 15 years ago. That is several weeks ago that my wife is concerned about me walking in the neighborhood. Uh, listen, I, I've been uh, around church all my life and, and uh, I can tell you that, that there have been awful experiences with prejudice and racism in church. I mean, I, I can remember uh, in, in church where uh, there was a gentleman that actually had an inner city ministry that he would pick up kids and, and bring them to, to, to get ministry, um, uh, pick up inner city kids to, to, to bring them to get ministry to, but he wouldn't let me in his house and he's driving the bus. Um, I, I, I can remember uh, some of the things where, you know, my, my wife is white and um, one of her family members actually said when she got engaged to me in tears, uh, said to, to her, you are throwing your life away. By marrying me, you are throwing your life away. I, I've been at church again. I, I worked in children's ministry, and uh, I had only been working for a couple of weeks, and I got on the the bus, and we were going to take a trip to um, a, a, a kid's camp. And two of the kids asked me, was I the bus driver? Now, listen, it, it, I wasn't mad at the kids, but here's what that, that showed me. Like they, they've only seen African-Americans in a certain, uh, from a certain vantage point. So they figure if this guy, he's new and he's getting on the bus, he must be the bus driver. I've gotten hate voicemails. I've had people leave the campus that I oversee because there was a black campus pastor. Um, uh, like the list goes on and on about some of those, some of those experiences. And I, I just want to say, I recognize even as I share this, if you were to have my mom sitting here or you were to have my dad sitting here, what I'm not going to say is we haven't made progress. You listen to some of their stories. Yeah. I mean, it, it is unbelievable, but yeah. So what happens is that when you see a man jogging down the street or when you see a, a man with, someone's knee on their neck what comes up inside of you especially if you've had these experiences are things like this wait a minute what if that was my son i mean philip think about this george floyd at 47 years old called out for his mother what has to happen to a man at 47 years old to call out for his mother. 
So this is, this is a part of this conversation, Philip, that when African-Americans see what transpires in our nation, it triggers your own past experiences. You think about that's my son or that's my daughter or that's my husband or that's my wife. And these things begin to erupt inside of you. Uh, and, and so that is part of what you see when you talk about the, the rioting that's taking place. And I love how you said that, listen, we're, we're, I, guys, I, I'm gonna tell you as a black man, my perspective on the rioting, first of all, I think we riot because of a sense of hopelessness. When people feel hopeless, they start to do desperate things, okay? Uh, I am not at all uh, a proponent or agreeing with violent protests. That is not that is not the posture of my heart at all. I'm not saying burn the building down. To me, sometimes it's like, Philip, if you made me mad, it's like me going and burn my brother's house down because you made me mad. Like, that doesn't even make sense to me. You know, like, I, I, I'm not saying, uh, but here, here's what I do understand. I, I have uh, family members that would say, Jelani, the reason why we may vandalize a building because you can rebuild a building, you can't rebuild a life. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying again that, that I condone that, but I understand what they're saying. I do absolutely believe that Martin Luther King's approach of a nonviolent, peaceful protest to me was so brilliant because actually it was a direct affront to a stigma, a label on black people in general. So if you think about it, historically, black people have been dehumanized. So the verbiage that was used to, to describe them was a monkey, or, or we can continue to go down uh, some very derogatory terms, but these are dehumanizing terms. And so you take a guy in the 60s who decides to do nonviolent protest, it is actually more human to refrain than to fight. So think about this. It's brilliant to go, I'm going to stand there and allow you to say things to me, hit me, spray me with water hose, throw me in the prison and not retaliate takes more self-control and speaks of more dignity and humanness than it does to do the opposite. And so I think this approach is brilliant and a direct affront. But we have to understand that those are things that people feel when when we see this and listen I, I, the other part of this is listen there there is dna in me dna in me that they were slaves now i don't know how to quantify all this philip but i'm just telling you that some of my people in my history that were working in the cotton fields there is still a part of this that i'm like i, I wonder sometimes if my great great grandmother isn't sitting here wanting to talk to you philip wanting to have a conversation and say hey we got to continue this fight and we've got to move forward so i think that is where we find ourselves today Whew, bro man that is, that is so so powerful um Okay, let, 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 let's go here in this conversation because yeah. I, I, I love what you say. I, I mean, love, love, love what you said about the, the peaceful protests. How many peaceful protests can we have and not have enough change? How many times can we have peaceful protests that don't move the ball forward come on man we're both football players and we know if you don't move the ball down the field you don't score and if you don't score then you can't win i mean yeah i mean i think it was powerful martin luther king i think it was an affront to i think it was a beautiful thing and i and i still think it's a beautiful thing but 
but how long? I, I think this, I think what you said, right? It comes out of hopelessness. And the hopelessness is, is, is what, how, how many peaceful protests are we going to do? And nothing, nothing changes. I, I mean, I don't know, but, but I would think that would begin to do something on the inside of me as, as an African-American here in, uh, in the United States of America to say, I mean, what we're talking about the, the, the 50s, the six peaceful protests, we've been doing that for 70 years, and yet I still see what I see. We're still reading about what we're reading about. These things are still happening. And then if we really want to go there and we really want to talk about it, we say, okay, we tried a peaceful protest of, of people of influence taking a knee and you didn't like that. We tried the peaceful protest in this way and you didn't like that. We've tried to protest in these peaceful manners and, and you called us more names and you criticized us even greater. And, and so now here, here we are speaking out in a violent manner and you just have to say, well, I mean, almost, I just told, I was told to tell somebody the other day, well, it's almost like, well, of course, like, what do you expect? Mm -hmm. Like, how many peaceful protests can we have and nothing change? And then that hopelessness begins to build. And so, like, now I'm fighting for something. Um, man, I, I just, I don't even know, really well, know where, feel, where I'm me, going there, but I just well, think that that's the real. Yeah, uh, so what you're describing is very real. So I remember talking to a family member of mine, and, and one of the, the conversations was this. Hey, Jelani, if, if we knock on somebody's door and say, hey, we're out here starving, would we, we really would like for, for, do you have something extra so that we can have something to eat? And you, you don't answer the door. And we're going, hey, we're, we're outside. We know you're in there. We, we really would like, okay. And then we knock on the door again two days later. We are really starving out here. Um, we know you're in there. We know you have plenty of food. Could, could, could you spare some food for me and my family? Uh, about a week into it, it moves from us knocking on the door to figuring out how to kick down the door because it hasn't worked yeah. before. And, and, and so we're going, we're at a desperate place. If I don't get food for my children, then, then we're going to die. And so that brings out a level of desperateness that I do believe that, that comes, that manifests itself in, in these types of situations. So I absolutely, I love that you bring up that point, Philip, to go there, there is a place where you come to where there's a sense of hopelessness and, and you look at historically, hey, this is what we did, and maybe this worked in that season, but we continue to face some of the same challenges. We have to do something different. Here's the only thing I would add to this, though, is in the civil rights movement, the church was silent. So for me, it's not, it's not necessarily the, the thing that we're saying we have to do more because change hasn't fully come to fruition. Got it. I actually think, though, that the major issue is the church. So whether you want to burn a building down or whether you want to peacefully protest, here is my issue. 
my issue is the silence of the church. To me, the thing that moves the needle further and the people with the actual answer who have the same father, by the way, which means we're all a part of the same family. And when was the last time your brother or sister got in trouble and you didn't go, I'm going to jump in and help out. But that's what the church did in the civil rights movement. Not, not all the churches, not everybody, but as a majority that there was no speaking up. And I actually think, what needs to happen is it not about burning a building down. I understand that response. We've been banging on the door. But to me, the response, and, and don't get hijacked by the fact that, because what happens is that when you when you see the, the fires and the police stations burning, we deviate from the actual issue. Come on. We yeah. deviate from the actual issue that there is, there are still racism, prejudice, bigotry, systems that are set up in our nation uh, that need to be addressed. So, so I think we can easily be diverted to those things. At the same time, the church has the answer. And so I believe that the change or the next step or what needs to take place is that we speak up and we have conversations like this where two men can get together and dialogue honestly as a beginning point to move the needle forward. Mm. So good. All right, let's speak to that right now. Um, as, the, as the body of Christ, men and women of God, what should be our response right now? And I would like for you, if you can, really to speak to both. What would you say, what should be the response from, from, from Black Americans? What should be the response from white Americans? What should be our our Christian response, right? Not 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 we're not. I'm not necessarily saying about fixing the structures and and the systems and so you know all of the injustice and like what I'm talking about as individuals, an individual, Black American, White American. What should my response be as, as a follower of Jesus to this this conversation? So I'll give you a few thoughts. Obviously, I, I won't say that, that I have the complete answer on this, but I think I'll, I'll give some, some starting points. Uh, so let me speak to my white brothers and sisters. One of the things that I, I think is a practical win is the fact that you and I are having this conversation. In fact, Philip, the fact that you and I are having this conversation communicates that there has been progress. We have moved forward, but we're not there yet. Okay, right. what you're doing is actually creating a space to go to what my pastor talks about the other side of the bottle that you actually walk around and, and you want to have a dialogue with a person who's different color, culture, or class to understand, okay? So one of the things that I think is great is that we're having this conversation. But in Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, okay? And, and when you think about the story of the Good Samaritan, I understand that this story was birthed out of a question that a lawyer, an expert in the law asked, okay? Uh, which by the way, just as a side note, many of Jesus's teachings were responses to questions that people were asking. This is so important for us in this season to understand that it, it was, hey, John's disciples taught him how to pray. Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? Um, uh, it, it was, listen, we, we want to sit on your right hand and on your left hand when you come into your kingdom. Can we do that? And Jesus then teaches us about leadership, okay? So it is a response to question that people are asking. So let me just pause for a moment and say to the church at large, 
we need to answer the questions people are really asking. Part of the reason why we have to have the dialogues that we have right now and not stick our head in the sand when these issues come up is because we need to answer, like Jesus did, the real questions people are asking. People are going to get perspective from CNN and BET and NBC and all these other things, and yet we need to give biblical perspective. So the first thing to all of us is that we need to be willing to delve into the scriptures, to have conversations, to answer the questions that people are asking. So then we go to Luke 10, though. Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan in response to a question, who is my neighbor? Now, I will say on the very front of this that Jesus, what he's talking to this gentleman about, he's actually exposing his need for him, okay? But in this, he teaches us some principles. And so get this, it's interesting to me that it starts off and he's talking about church people. He says a Jewish man is beaten up on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and, and, he, and he says there's two guys, there's a priest and a Levite or a temple assistant. He's talking about church people, Philip. It's just it's fascinating to me when you think about Jesus as he's talking about how to be a neighbor. He starts off by comparing church people to a good Samaritan. So he talks about these church people. They see a situation and the Bible says, you know, man's beaten up, left on the road. They see him and they walk to the other side of the road. Then the Good Samaritan, who, of course, the Samaritans were considered half-breeds, okay? In fact, Jesus describes him in the New Living Translation as the despised Samaritan. So racism is not new. It was going on all the way back in Jesus's day, okay? And he says this despised Samaritan who they saw as a half-breed because uh, the, the Jews had um, intermarried with the Assyrians and, and they created this, this their, you know, this, the, the Samaritan race, basically. And so they were considered half-breeds. And so Jesus brings in this good Samaritan and, and here's what he says. The only difference, Philip, between the Levite and the priest and the Samaritan was not the road they walked on and was not what they saw. It was what they felt when they saw the man beaten. What they felt was different. The Bible describes no feelings with the priest and the Levite, but the Bible says the good Samaritan felt compassion for him, okay? To my white brothers and sisters, one of the best things that you can do is pray for compassion. So here, here's, here's the interesting about the word compassion, Philip. So compassion is made up of two words. is the prefix com, C-O-M, which means uh, with or together, and then passion, uh, the root word there, uh, which of course can mean a, a intense emotion, but in Latin, it actually means suffering. So that's why we say, when we talk about the movie, The Passion of the Christ, it's the suffering of the Christ, okay? Every time in the Gospels, when Jesus uses the word compassion, it is always followed up by a subsequent action. Every time. Twelve times you find it, and every time there's action. So, so Jesus, when he has compassion on a person, he heals them. When he has compassion on the crowd, he makes sure, he goes to make sure that they are fed. When he tells the story of the prodigal son, 
the father saw his son afar off and what did he have? He had compassion and so he ran to him. So every time you have compassion for someone, it moves you to action. Now think about this, compassion, together or with suffering. What compassion is, is to enter into the suffering with another person. You as my white brothers and sisters, pray for compassion. You may not have the same experiences, you may not have the same background, but you can look at a person who's hurting and broken and you can enter into their suffering because that's your brother and your sister. You can look at a police officer with his knee on someone's neck and you can see your daughter or your son or your father or your cousin. You can you enter into the suffering because I have to do something. It's the compassion. So part of what African-Americans get so upset about is what feels like the apathy of the majority. It feels like people don't care. And so if you pray practically for God to give you a heart of compassion, that will move you to subsequent action. The second thing, though, to my white brothers and sisters is what the Good Samaritan does is that he acknowledges what other people avoid. So the priest and the Levite, they avoid this man completely. The Good Samaritan sees him, his heart is filled with compassion, and he goes to take care of him. He acknowledges what other people avoid. Philip, this goes back to our, our, our question earlier, that oftentimes uh, we feel uncomfortable with the subject of race and issues and things like that. But, but I remember this time where my, uh, a dear friend of mine, his mother passed away. And my mother's still alive. I, I didn't know what it was like to lose your mother. And uh, because it was uncomfortable for me, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. I remember the first time I saw this gentleman, uh, I made a joke. And I didn't make a joke, of course, about his mom, but I made a joke just about our childhood because I was uncomfortable. I didn't know what to say. And so we kind of, we laughed about it and it was okay. But when I remember leaving that, that situation and thinking that was not the most caring thing to do. Well, his father passed away as well. And, and this time, though, when his father passed away, my dad's still alive. So, so I, I still don't know what it's like to have your dad lost, okay? But when his father passed away, my heart was broken. There was a level of compassion there. And I remember the first time I got on the phone with this gentleman, we actually started joking on the phone again and I stopped the conversation. I said, hey, before I say anything else, let me say to you, I am so sorry about your dad. I'm going to acknowledge what other people or even what I avoided in the past. I am so sorry about your dad. And then I said this to him, I said, listen, I want you to know that I will be at the funeral and I will do whatever you need me to do. I'll be there. I'll be there to support you. And guess what? I showed up at the funeral and I did whatever he needed me to do. Here's my point. Pray for compassion. But then when something like this happens in our nation, acknowledge it. And it's okay to reach out, send a text message to make a phone call and just say, listen, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do, but I'm sorry. Uh, I, I don't fully understand everything, but I'm here for you. Let's have a conversation. Let's, let's talk about this. Let's, let's dialogue about it. And then I would say, uh, I would say, do what you can. Sometimes I think we, we have these daunting, um, we feel this, this daunting weight of, well, what, okay, what can I do? And I heard someone say, listen, you eat an elephant one bite at a time. 
And this is the elephant in the room, Philip, that we don't talk about it. You eat an elephant one bite at a time. Here, here's what I'm saying. We're not asking you to do everything. We're asking you to do something. And mm -hmm. something may mean that I actually need to pause for a moment and pray and ask the Lord, is there anything in my heart? Paul said, excuse me, Peter said in, um, in Acts chapter 10, the Lord has shown me. The Lord has shown me. So, so listen, there are moments where we need to deal with things in our own heart. Maybe there's racism there. Maybe there's prejudice. Listen, I, I will be honest with you, especially two or three years ago when all of the upheaval was going on uh, in our nation. Again, the Lord began to deal with me about some prejudices in my heart because prejudices are prejudgments about people. And he started to deal with me about that. So listen, listen, it, one of the things that you need to do is pause for a moment and say, Holy Spirit, is there anything in my heart that is racist or prejudiced? Uh, I need you to deal with my heart. Because that, 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 listen, you can change laws, but only God can change hearts. So first, I, I want to deal with my heart. But also, from a practical standpoint, if I'm going to do what I can, guess what? That means I go to the other side of the bottle, like we talked about. And I pick up the phone and say, I had a, I had a pastor friend of mine call me. He sent me a text message yesterday and said, hey, do you have a minute to talk? And this is a white buddy I've known for years. And I knew, I knew what he wanted to talk about. So I call him and he says, hey, Jelani, I just need to listen can you just tell me how you feel? I stopped and said, first, I want to tell you how much that means to me. Let me just say, one of the things you can do as a white brother or white sister is to pick up the phone, make a phone call and say, hey, I just want to listen and help me understand and go to the other side of the bottle. The other thing is from a do what you can is to speak up. Listen, speak up. Paul confronts Peter in Galatians chapter two, because he stops eating with the Gentiles. Now, this is the same Peter in Acts chapter 10 that God actually used to go and minister to the Gentiles, and he stops eating with them because he's afraid of what some of the other uh, uh, Jewish people would feel when he's in Antioch. And, and, and Paul says, wait a minute, what you're doing is actually not in step with the gospel. Now, now, I want to be clear, the gospel, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus died, he was buried and resurrected, but the implications of the gospel, so the gospel is what Jesus did to reconcile us to God, but the implications of the gospel mean that we now are part of the ministry of reconciliation, are supposed to be reconciled to our brothers. And so, so Paul says, what you're doing is not in step with the gospel. Sometimes it's appropriate for us to speak up when we hear someone making a joke, when we hear some making, someone saying a derogatory statement, when we hear someone saying something that puts another color, culture, or class down, we speak up as believers. And, and let me just tell you, my white brothers and white sisters, I told Philip this earlier. I said, look, for me, or I, I told someone this earlier, I may have said it to Philip, um, but, but for me, people expect me as a black man to speak up. But when you as a white person speak up, it's different. So I want to encourage you, listen, you pray for compassion because when you get compassion, you will act. You acknowledge what other people avoid. You, you just make a phone call. You send a text message. Listen, you listen, you speak up, you repent where God shows you things. And then I know sometimes it feels like what people, all people say is pray. But, but here's why this is so important. You have to pray. And here's why. 
because this is very much a spiritual battle. What the enemy really wants to do with racism is he really wants to bring division. And we need to pray because what Jesus prayed, now think about this, Jesus's prayer in John 17 was a prayer that we would be one. So we want to come alongside that and pray for oneness and pray for unity and pray that our, that, that we would be known by the way in which we love each other because that's what Jesus said. So th those are things, just practical steps for my white brothers and sisters. To my black brothers and sisters, when, when a situation happens like this and we are triggered, the trigger is actually an opportunity to invite the healing of the Holy Spirit. So what I understand from a practical standpoint is that when I see a video and something happens inside of me, I need to take those feelings and emotions to God and go, why do I feel this way? Why am I so angry? Why am I so sad? I think it's very important that we, first of all, feel those things. So I'm the first one to say again, there was a level of callousness when I saw the videos that concerned me about me. We need to feel those things because a healthy soul feels. Now, we're not governed by our emotions. Uh, I heard someone say that um, emotions are like kids. You, you don't let them drive the car, but you don't put them in the trunk. So, so our emotions are, are real. They indicate often what we believe. And think about this, Jesus in the garden, the Bible says that he said, I am overwhelmed with grief to the point of death. We would all say that Jesus was a healthy soul, and yet Jesus, in a moment of intense, intense pain and difficulty, he allowed himself to feel. So to my Black brothers and Black sisters and people of color, because I also know Latinos, that we feel these things from color, culture, and class. It is okay to feel. In fact, it communicates a level of health that I can be aware of what's going on in my heart. Now, here's what Jesus did. He took what he felt, and the Bible says the next thing he did is he prayed. So we want to take what we feel, and we want to bring it before the Lord, and ask the Holy Spirit to blow on it and deal with that. Are there people I need to forgive? Are there some things that I need healing from? Because Jesus heals the broken heart. So I think there's a spiritual component of inviting the Holy Spirit to bring healing when I see these things. The, the second thing is, you cannot disassociate your color from your experience. Okay, so so it, I would be remiss if I said, um, you know what, in, in America, though, I'm, I'm just a believer and a believer only that race and color don't play into my experience. That would be remiss. Okay, and in fact, you know, I heard a pastor say, we're not colorblind, we're colorblessed. All right, so we don't want to disconnect that. At the same time, Although I, that's, that is my experience, and I'm going to bring that wherever I go. I'm not ashamed of that. At the same time, my life as a believer is supposed to follow the life of Christ. So my response needs to be a Christ-like response. It is not okay for me to go online and go off without pausing for a moment and praying. And Jesus, as believers, Jesus, what are you speaking in this situation? Let me be a mouthpiece for you, God. So I want to say to my black brothers and black sisters, when things like this happen, I encourage you 
to pray and respond in a way in which Jesus would desire for you to respond. It is not okay for us to dismiss being salt and light like Jesus called us to even when we're angry even when we're upset and even when we see injustice. The other thing I would say is we need to make it easy for our white brothers and sisters to have a conversation. I, I don't want to make it difficult for you, Philip. I don't want to make it difficult for other people. I, I, I want, when, when you want to have a conversation, guess what? I'm going to speak the truth in love as the scriptures say, but I want this to be a safe place for us to talk. So I, I think one, we can invite the Lord to deal with our hearts, whether they're there when we're triggered by certain situations and maybe even there's, um, prejudice or, or things like that inside of us, I, I think, too, we can choose to respond in a way that represents or reflects Christ's heart. Three, I think we can make it easy for dialogues like this. And then four, here, here's the thing I would say, and actually this goes both ways. God speaks to Peter through food in Acts chapter 10. I'm from Louisiana. I may be in Texas now, but I'm from Louisiana. I like to eat. Okay, God speaks to Peter through food. Paul confronts Peter over dinner. What is it about people eating together that makes a difference? For both sides of this, you want to take some steps and move the needle? How about you come eat in my home? How about I come eat in your home? Like, like, it's not easy to go to church together. I understand that, but it's easier. But when you come to my house and we sit at the dinner table and you meet my kids and my family and that's when we dialogue, let me tell you the problem with this is that we have situations that happen in our nation and then everything erupts and we talk about it then, but then in between we don't eat together. We don't sit down together. We don't have a conversation together. We don't invite each other in our homes. We don't do life together. So for all of us, how about this? Why don't we decide we're gonna do life together? How about we decide that your kids are gonna hang out with my kids and we can eat dinner together and we can laugh together and we can connect together. So when something explodes, no, we're in relationship. This is family. Let's, let's come together in this. And so I think for all of us, man, who's at your dinner table? You wanna make a difference? Diversify your dinner table. Go to somebody else's house. This is what we, what we can do. So I think, Philip, those are some, some practical thoughts on how we can move the needle forward with both sides of this for us to go to a place where I believe God's heart is, listen, that the church is the answer. And, what, and in fact, Jesus said it like this in, in, in John 17. The reason why I pray that we'd be one is because he said that when people see you come together as one, they would know that God sent me, that Jesus is the Messiah. This is why the enemy fights so hard to bring division, because it is the ultimate statement that Jesus is the Messiah. And so we come together, we eat together, we love together, we do life together, we cry together. Those are the things that move the needle forward. Man, bro, that, that, those are, uh, are so practical, but so powerful. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. Very practical things uh, that are very powerful. I, I, would, I, I would just like to just kind of maybe not really add, but even to get a perspective. And, and as you talk about compassion, uh, there is definitely uh, compassion. I, I mean, I would say you better, you better check your soul if you weren't moved to compassion 
as as we saw Big Floyd, as as the name that he went by, lay there on the ground with that knee in his neck, saying, "I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe," and then as you mentioned earlier, crying out for his mom. If that does not move you, as a, as a as a white American, you need to check your soul, but. But let's take it one step further. And let's say being moved by the, um, the emotional, could we call it trauma? I don't know what else to call it. Yep. I, I, Jelani, I've, I've, never, I've never questioned, do I put a hoodie on whenever I go out early in the morning? I've never gotten pulled over by a police officer and thought 10 and two. Mm-hmm. It's never crossed my mind. I am free from those emotions. And I think that whenever we look into situations, we can see past the, um, the emotional trauma, the emotional strain, the emotional struggle that you have, that you have lived with now for 40 years of your life. And and because I didn't experience that emotional struggle, I don't have compassion for your struggle because I don't even understand your struggle. It's never crossed. Johnny, I, this is out of our relationship. When you tell me about getting pulled over and you're 10 and two, that was like, year, however many years ago, that was like a mind blowing moment for me to think, what, what can you, it, but that came out of, of me learning. And, and I think that, that learning, learning is our lever to, to get to the next level. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got to be willing to learn. And where do we learn? We learn in conversations. Mm-hmm. And, and when I start realizing, as, we, as you mentioned a moment ago, going out for, for your early morning prayer walk and your wife saying, hey, do you really want to wear that? That is a, that there is an emotional strain that is undeniable but it is not understandable to somebody like me if I don't even have that conversation. That thought, that thought never crosses my mind. So whenever I see something, like, what is the big deal? The big deal is that I've been living with an emotional strain for 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. However old you are, there is an emotional strain. And it, as me, as a white American, if I don't have compassion for the emotional trauma, not just the event, not, not, not just the uh, Ahmaud Arbery, not, not just the George Floyd, not just all the other names that we could go, go down, and there are so many, but do I have compassion for the emotional strain on the people that are in my community? So good. Things I've never thought about, yep. things that I've never walked through, things that I didn't even know were actually conversations happening in your home until I actually hear about it. And I think to your point to say, we've got to have these conversations because learning is our lever. It's that lever that pushes us. We push that learning lever and man, it pushes our life to a whole new level because I can't have compassion for what I don't see. Exactly. I can't have compassion for what I don't know. But when I start hearing you talk about 10 and two at a 
at a, a, a being pulled over by a police officer in a conversation with your wife and I start hearing these things, I'm like, oh man. So whenever I see George Floyd on the, on the cement cry, crying out, I can't breathe, it's not just the moment and going, wow, that's so sad. I hate that he died that way. I'm thinking about the emotional trauma that Jelani Lewis has gone through, the emotional trauma that all of these other people that I know and I love, and they've walked through all of this trauma, and what are they feeling in this moment? And that's where you get to the places I called you and I cried myself to sleep. Yes, it was sad. Yes, it was sad what happened. Yes, that, that better do something to you. But what makes you cry yourself to sleep and cry your eyes out is the emotional trauma that your brothers and sisters have endured for years. So good, Phil. And we can't just look to the event and the moment and say, wow, that was sad and that was heartbreaking and not have compassion for every little moment. Mm -hmm. So good. every little conversation. And I think that that's what will allow us as white Americans to get to the place where we can start to understand at a higher level and realize, oh wow, this is not just about that event. This is about your life. This is about the life of every, that's, that, that's mind-blowing, and that's a game changer. And, and we have to have compassion for the emotional, I don't know, well, maybe you can, maybe you know another word to say it. I mean, all I know is it's emotional trauma that, that, that it's just like, uh, uh, it's just a, a constant strain on the emotions that you have to, that yeah. you have to live with that I didn't live with, yeah. that I don't live with. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I think that we, we cannot overlook mm -hmm. that. We have to have compassion for that, not just compassion for the event. And I think that that's where, that's where it gets into what you were just bringing to the table, like the event there, oh, that's so sad. Oh, okay, I'm gonna pray for peace right now. And everything kind of settles down and we move on. But, but bro, let me tell you what I can't move on from. I can't move on from the emotional trauma. Mm -hmm. I can't move on. And that's whenever I called you and I just said, man, I'm thinking about your kids. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about Judah and I'm thinking about Jaden. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, man, no, not on my watch, man. Like I, I, I know I, I might not be able to do a lot for today and tomorrow, but like, man, I'm not going to have Judah and Jaden growing up and, and experiencing what we are experiencing with right now. And like, yeah, man, I'm like, man, we've got, we've got to speak out. We've got to have these conversations. We've got to address these issues because we've got to move the ball forward because we, we can win. Man, we are not hopeless. We have the, 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 the power of the risen Christ dwelling on the inside of us as Christians. We can see this thing move forward, but, but it's not going to move forward if if we don't do some of these things that you talk about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if we will, man, I truly believe that we can begin to see some change. We yeah. can begin to understand. If we can begin to listen, mm -hmm. if we can begin to do these practical things that you said, I really do believe that we can begin to create a, a, a better society 
for, for, for Judah, for Jaden, and, and, and for every other single person of color in our country. Absolutely. That, that is so well said, Phil. And that, as you were speaking, it actually made me think of something. You know what word we haven't used at all in this conversation is guilt. What we use was compassion. Yeah. So, so this is, is so important to make this delineation because what often happens is, especially my white brothers and sisters, in a mm. conversation like this, we have white guilt. That was not what moved the Good Samaritan. It was compassion. Because if you're moved by guilt, it still puts you in this place of power. I feel bad for you, and so I'm going to try to help out. But when it's compassion, I've entered into that space. I also love just thinking about what you said. It's a great point, Philip, and that was our conversation. You were thinking about my children. The reason why you had that perspective is because you're not insulated. You actually have friends people that you connect with that love on that are from different colors and different cultures and different classes. And so you actually feel it in a different way than someone who, well, I mean, I saw him at church or I saw him in the grocery store, but no, I know his kids and I know her kids. And so I think what you're saying is so important that there is an understanding of the way I describe it is I, I took a sabbatical one year and, um, and on this, uh, you know, on the sabbatical, I basically had six weeks off from work. And I remember, you know, it took me about three weeks to fully disconnect. And then uh, I remember the day before I went back in the office, Philip, that I decided to check my email just to make sure I knew what I was getting into. And so I remember checking my email when I pulled up the, the Outlook box, my email flooded, of course. And I remember I'm sitting at the computer and I went, <gasps> And all of a sudden, I felt this weight. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, what, what is that? And I, I don't have, I didn't know, I, have I felt that before? And here's what I realized, Philip. I, I realized that the weight that I felt the day before I came in was actually what I had been living in for seven years. It was just the fact that because I disconnected for several weeks, I learned to live without the pressure and the weight. And so when it came back, I went, I don't want to live that way anymore. But I needed that disconnect. So, but think about this. For African-Americans, the weight is always there. So when I get in, in my car and if I see a police officer, I'm just telling you the things that start to go in my heart and in my mind and where am I going to place my hands and I hope this goes well is absolutely there. When my kids get out and go ride their bikes and we walk in our neighborhood, it's absolutely there. When I walk past a woman and she's got her purse there, I, 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 it's in my mind I'm thinking through those things. It's always there and like you said when you have the understanding that it is an emotional trauma all the time and that we're constantly feeling that it does something to your heart that takes it to a different place and and i love you know um i'll leave it at that i just i, I think what you're saying is so important because part of what you're describing is the fact that because we really know each other that there was a season, obviously I'm in, in Texas now and you're in Louisiana, but we did life together. We connected together. We, we got together. In fact, just think about this, Philip. 
we would have never been friends, but we played on the same football team. A team brought us together. Mm. It's just, just think about this. We, a team brought us together, and this team brought us together, and because of that team bringing us together, we became friends. And truly, though, it wasn't just the team that brought us together. As we began this, this journey on a football team, we met Jesus. And so a team may have brought us together, but Jesus kept us together. Jesus connected our hearts together. I'm just saying, guys, we're on a team here. We're on a team. We're brought together because we're on a team. We're on on the team of God. We're children of light. And Jesus is the glue that's holding us together. And think about this. When you talk about the Azusa Street Revival and you look at in the early 1900s, William J. Seymour, you know what brought people from all over the world? It was the Holy Spirit. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think William Seymour said that it it, it is that Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus actually removed or erased the color line. It was Jesus that brought people together. And that's why I go back again. Listen, we, like you said, we've got hope because we've got Jesus. Hosea 2.15 says, there I will give her vineyards back to her and I will transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. God says, I'm going to take the low place, the dark place, the valley and transform it into a place of hope, an entryway, a doorway, a gateway of hope. Church, we have hope because we have Jesus and Jesus brings us together. Jesus is the glue. That's why we have one father, God, the father, and, and we're part of one family and we are in this together. And so when my brother hurts, I hurt. When my sister hurts, I hurt. And we talk because we're family and we eat together because we're family and we pray together and we hurt together because we are family. But it is Jesus that brings us together. And I'll say this last thing that I think about the Holy Spirit. It's so amazing. When Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come upon you, he lists out four places that you're going to go because of the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, When the Holy Spirit comes on you in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power to be my witnesses, to be like me, to show my love. And he says, in Jerusalem, Judea, and where else? Samaria. What? What? Samaria? You you mean we're going to go, he's saying this to a group of guys who think that Samaritans are half-breeds, despise Samaritans. And you say, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to take me there? And then it says to the ends of the earth, Jesus, Jesus throws in Samaria. Here's my point. The Holy Spirit empowers us. If we will surrender to him, you have to go to Samaria. You have to go to people that aren't like you. You have to be friends. You have to be in relationship. You have to connect there because it's the power of the Holy Spirit that says, I'm taking you out. And so Jesus brings us together. The Holy Spirit empowers us to connect. And we need the church to stand up, to rise up, and to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this nation. Come on. <laughs> Bro, that, that was so good, man. Um, I got one final, one final thing I, I want to bring up. And I, I feel like this is essential right now. How do we talk to our children about this issue? We, we have 
we, I, I, from, from, from both sides of both sides of the bottle, as you have said, how do we talk, how do we talk to our kids in a, in a, a biblical way, a Jesus focused way, but then also in a very real and a practical way, how, how do we, how do we navigate this issue? Um, and I think that that's a, that's a lot of questions that, that, that parents are asking, how do I talk to my child about this um and 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 what are some pointers that that you that you can give us besides number one just saying like have the conversation (laughs) okay let's just go ahead and assume that okay we're going to do that right like that's number one like you have to have the conversation um what should that conversation look like? And, and obviously every age and whether you're five or you're 15 and those things, I mean, but, but what can we do as we talk to our children? How can we help them navigate? And what should our talking points be? What, what should we as parents really be focused on? Maybe even if you could even really speak once again, even, in, even to white America, right? Like what, what should what should we focus on as we are having these conversations with our children? Maybe because okay, let's go because our parents didn't have these conversations with us. Th- that conversation never happened. So like I I don't know really how to have this conversation or or, or the conversation happened in a way that we don't we don't want that conversation to go right. So how how do we talk to our children about uh, about this issue? Great question, Philip. And and one of the things I'm thinking, even as you're talking about saying like our parents didn't have the conversation, uh, part of it is we weren't in the history books. So so the reality is, uh, I mean, just think about it. There are times when when you may have come home from school because there's something that you learn. And when black history is void, you're not having a whole lot of conversations about that. I think one of the things, and I can I can speak to um, you know I've got a six year old, a four year old, and an eight month old, and the 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 I guess in many ways the good fortune I have is I actually live in attention. So one, my my mother uh, was born in Portland, Oregon. She was one of the first African American women integrated into the all white school. Then my dad uh, grew up in Plain Dealing, Louisiana. Okay, drinking out of different water fountains and, you know, total different experience. They get married, live in California, and then come to Louisiana. I had the good fortune of growing up in a home with a mom who had incredible experience and exposure. Okay, mm-hmm. so that, that lent itself to some great conversation. And a dad who also had incredible experience and exposure in the sense to bring those two together and help me form perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm married to a white woman and, and she's from Amarillo. Okay, let me just say, I think in Amarillo, they may have been four black people total. Okay, she's just like, so, um, and, and so we get married and we're living in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, very diverse, of course. And we have uh, three children. And I can remember my wife and I indulging in dialogue, talking about the kind of books that we're going to read and things that I feel very strongly that we need to talk about and what she feels very strongly we need to talk about in, in this, in many ways, class of uh, um, clash of culture that happened in our home. But I'll, I'll tell you what, what we've done. Uh, you know, we're still learning in this process and growing, but here, here's what we've done. So there are actually some books um, 
And you can get out the Christian bookstore and Philip, I can actually send you the specifics, but, but they have, if you go into the Christian bookstore, they're basically biographies of uh, different historical figures. So you could find George Washington, but you can also find Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King and, 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 and some of our heroes as we look through history and Abraham Lincoln and some of these things. So they actually have these in the Christian bookstore. And literally what we've done with our kids is we will take out one of those books and we'll start reading through that. Well, we start reading through, and, and what they do is they do a great job of communicating historical facts in a child's language. So this has actually given us the first real estate in our kids' minds. We want the first real estate. So, so parents, this is so important. Um, if you don't educate them, somebody else will. The media, their friends, um, somebody will educate them, and it probably will not have a biblical or balanced perspective. Uh, but you want the first real estate in their minds, and so we want the first real estate. So listen, we, we open up those books, and we read about Martin Luther King, and we, we read about Frederick Douglass's story, and literally, my kids will stop, okay, so daddy, what does that mean? And, and, and how did that happen? And we literally just have the conversation right there. We just start talking about, well, this is what slavery was. Um, this is what happened. Uh, this is how it made people feel. Um, thank God this is where we are now. And we literally go through those books and talk about it because, and we all know this, but we need to know where we came from so we don't repeat it. And so we walk through our history. We have that, that conversation. What I would say, so that's just from a practical thing, I encourage those books, especially with the, the, the younger kids, to, to read those through. And I mean, I think I would say the ones that we have, well, you could probably, you know, I would say maybe 12, 13 years old, those books would be good for. And we literally just read through some of those and it brings us to some, some dialogue and conversation. Um, and that's, that's, you know, we, we read Abraham Lincoln and we also read um, Frederick Douglass. So we get both and it brings that, that dialogue. So practically speaking, if you can find a resource that you can read together to open up a conversation and speak honestly. So the other part of this is we're, I'm, I'm careful with what I communicate um, and how I communicate, but we're not gonna be dishonest with our kids. So, so for example, uh, this was, it may have even been today that my six-year-old little girl uh, wants, oh, we're, we're talking about what a protest is. So she's going, okay, why do people protest, daddy? Great question. Wow. I want to be honest with you. We're fumbling our way through it of going, how do we say this in a way that she understand it, uh, understands it? But we're going to be honest with her because we want the first real estate in our mind. And I'm not going to lie to you. We go, Holy Spirit, help us how, how to say this. But we answer those questions. So we talk to her about the, the protest. Again, what I would say is we are intentional which means we bring resources into this, which means when she sees something on TV or there's a question, we have a conversation. If she knows that daddy's gonna have a Zoom meeting, daddy, why are you having this Zoom meeting? I, baby, we're gonna talk about some of the racial tension in our nation. 
we take the opportunities to have that conversation. We bring in biblical perspective, obviously, but but that's been a, a practical piece for us. The other thing that I would say, just as uh, from a practical standpoint, is we in the coronavirus season, this quarantine that, that we're going through, when you had a person that you knew of or potentially could have the the coronavirus, do you know what you probably did as a family? Y'all prayed together? You prayed together. In other words, what you were concerned about, you prayed about, and that led to conversations. Let me just tell you, with our family, hey, what we're concerned about, we pray about, and that's conversations. So, and, and listen, this is so important. What you pray about is what you get a burden for. I trick our staff at Frisco all the time and say, listen, we're going to pray about such and such. And here's what I know. When you begin to pray about it, you begin to develop a heart for that. Yeah. So, so I would say in, in the conversation with children, be honest. The worst thing you can do is not tell them the truth and then they find out later. You listen, when we look back, it wasn't pretty. But can I just tell you, even when you read the Bible, there's some stuff that ain't pretty. And, and yeah, I mean, I was reading this morning. I'm like, okay, Lot actually had two children by his own daughters. Like, so do you call them your grandsons or are they your, and this is the Ammonites, you know? I'm like, what? But the Bible doesn't leave it out. The Bible communicates honestly about what happened. And, and we talk about it. So I would say communicate honestly to them. Take advantage of the opportunities when you see things on television to talk about those things. Now, we, we also, there are some things that we go, you're not ready for this. And so you have to gauge that with your children. But we're honest. We take the opportunities that we have, whether that's from TV or uh, some other source. We read books together and we pray together. And that's kind of where I am right now, Phil, where I go, man, this is this is, you know, what we're in the process of doing. You may have some some other ideas, but I would say that those are universal. It's not a black and white thing. This is the, 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 the here's the thing I would say from a white standpoint. Um, and, and my wife will tell you this part of me, I, and she, she balanced me out cause I'm going in general, mixed kids, especially if you see my kids, um, you can probably tell that they're biracial, but, but most people at the end of the day, when they're checking a box and filling out information, they're going to check black. That, that is the way things are. But my wife is so great. She's like, Jelani, they are half white and I'm going and so they do have this side of the family too. So it forces us culturally to go, we're going to be intentional about both. What I would say to, to white families is I would go, Hey, listen, the school systems are getting better. Um, but you know, we've got black history month, but it's a month. It is not necessarily laced throughout the whole year. You can be intentional by getting some books and, and having, using some of those resources to have the conversation. The other thing that, uh, to go back to what we said, if you want to teach your kids about some of these things too, as much as we're talking about having the conversation, take your children, your family over to someone's house that's another culture than you. But my wife and I, I mean, we've been to, uh, seriously, Indians, Asians, it doesn't matter. And you know what that does? Hey, why do they cook that way? 
Why do we eat that? It forces conversations. We're putting people in environments that force conversations. So those, those would be my things, Philip, of, of, you know, dealing with, like I said, I've got a six-year-old and a four-year-old, but I'd go, we're intentional about resources that we have. Um, we're intentional about taking teaching moments based on TV or media or whatever. We pray together and we want to expose them to uh, different cultures that evoke conversations and we're honest with them. Yeah, so good. You know, I think the one thing, of course, we have a, a, a nine, six, three, and one-year-old. Um, I think there, there's a word that you said a little while back in our conversation that I would like to bring kind of back in as we kind of wrap up here, and that is guilt. Mm. And I think that sometimes the reason the conversation doesn't come up is because of the white so guilt. So good. And so I don't want to have the conversation because I don't want, I don't want my kid to say, well, why did the white people make the black people their slaves? I, I don't want to be associated with that. I, I don't want to have to answer that question. I don't want my child to think that somehow I was connected to that or I was a part of that. So right. And so it's like this, this guilt comes in. And so I'm like, okay, well, I just won't say anything about it. And because I don't want to have to try to explain it. And I, I, feel, I feel guilty, maybe even subconsciously. I'm not even aware that I'm guilty, but subconsciously I feel guilty. And I don't want to broach this. I don't, I don't want to talk about the subject. And so I think that to say, okay, let's move out of that guilt and get into that compassion, right? Like that's where the change is. The way the, that's just a beautiful thing of like get out of that guilt and get into that, to, to that compassion. And, you know, I think that, uh, man, I heard, um, one of the people that I really respect, uh, a pastor, speaker, author, um, African-American Carlos Whitaker, um, actually just, uh, just saw a man, a great post that he just put out and, um, uh, and, and man, he was just talking about, he's like, Hey, to my, my white brothers and sisters, like, you don't don't feel guilty because we say white privilege like you don't feel guilty like you, you don't have to feel bad like it's a real thing but, but don't like feel guilty because of it like you, you didn't do anything to create it but but at the same time don't deny it like it is there right and so i think that it's the same thing like in talking with our kids like we feel guilty that there's white privilege so either one we deny that it's there right we just act like oh i don't know what you're talking about or, or, or two, we feel so guilty that we don't want to talk about it. We know that it's real, but we don't want to have to talk about it. And so we stay away from the conversations, but it gets back to that guilt. It's that word that you said. It's that guilt. I feel guilty that there's white privilege. I feel guilty about our history. And, and I don't want to be somehow associated. I want my kids to think that I was a part of that or whatever that creates that guilt. And it keeps white America from having these conversations. And I say, man, we got to move out of that guilt and into that compassion. We got to let, we got to let the Holy Spirit move us out of that. And look, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I can't carry the guilt of being white. God created me this way. I'm not going to live ashamed of the color of my skin, but I'm also not going to allow my skin to determine the conversations that I have with my kids and the conversations that I have with other people. And I'm going to engage. I'm going to do all these things. And I'm, I'm going to live, as you said, intentional intentional conversations, intentional people coming into my home for dinner, intentional uh, moments with my children. 
I'm going to do and I'm not going to let guilt hold me back from those conversations. So good, Philip. I don't know. There's a book by uh, Miles McPherson, and I, I actually the title is, escapes me right now. But that you know, I can send that to you later. But he he talks about um, uh, white privilege, and uh, it, it just made me think when you were talking. He he compares it to the fact that uh, let's just say that I decide I want to buy a baseball glove, and when you go into the store to buy buy a baseball glove, guess what? Uh, most of those gloves are for right-handed people. Uh, when you sit down in a classroom, uh, the desks are made for right-handed people. If you want to get golf clubs, they're made for right-handed people. And, and, and so uh, what we would say is in those instances, that is right privilege. <laughs> you don't need to feel guilty about being born right-handed you don't feel guilty about that, but it's also not okay for us not to start thinking about the left-handed people out there. What I would say is, is to your point, I'm thinking about there are some things in my past that I am not proud of, and guess what? One day, I had to sit down and tell Judah, Jaden, and Jordan, here's what daddy did. But let me tell you why I'm telling them that. I'm telling them that because I never want them to do it. So I'm motivated by a better future for my kids. So I'm willing to have the conversation. So I would just say that as encouragement to, uh, to my white brothers and sisters, listen, you, you, you don't need to feel bad about being born white. You do not need to ignore the left-handed people out there, but specifically, you don't need to feel guilty about, hey, this was the past which keeps you from speaking up. No, you share with them so that we have a better future. And that's what we're all fighting for. Bro, uh, that, I mean, that, that was so well said. I, I, we are fighting for a better future. And that demands conversations. That demands moments like this. That demands the, the uncomfortable moments. That demands the the, the awkwardness, the I don't really know, it, it, it demands all of those things because creating a better future is a fight. The word create is hard work. You want to create a better future, man, you better be ready to fight for that future and work for that future. Um, we can't just want a better future. we got to be willing to work for it, right? If we just, you know, I love what Dave Ramsey says, like hope is not a strategy. We can't just live right now and say, I hope things change. I hope things get better. I hope, I, I hope the races can get along. I hope the cultures figure a way to work, work it out. Like that, 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 that we know that we got to have more, we got to have more than that. Hope can be a part of the strategy, but it can't be the strategy. Right. And we can't just want a better future. We got to be willing to work for that better future. Mm -hmm. And, and I feel like these conversations give us some tools some handles, some perspectives that we can start working through in ourselves first. And as we start working and processing through that, then we can bring that into the conversations with our family, into the conversations with our friends. And we can begin in that moment. Now we are beginning to build and create a better future. Um, but it, we know it is going to take work. Uh, and, uh, and I just want to say thank you once again, for taking the time to, to help us process, think through, 
giving us those practical tips and handles that we can begin to do some things to create that better future. Hey, is there anything that you would like to close out uh, our, our time with here? Yeah, well, first, I, I want to just repeat again what I said in the very beginning, Philip. I, I'm grateful for you for creating a safe space to have this dialogue. And, and again, I, I think that if we can't do this as a church, we've got major issues. So thank you for being intentional uh, in, in that space to create a, a dialogue and, and speaking up and saying, let's, we, we do want the better, we, we want a better future. Um, I, I, think, I think that the, the last thing that I would share is uh, I'm thinking about Psalm 133. And we are all familiar with this, but it, but it begins by saying how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters get along um, or brothers and sisters dwell in unity. And then it goes on to say at the latter part of the scripture, uh, I think in verse three, that there God commands a blessing, life forevermore. So God says, when brothers and sisters dwell in unity, I command a blessing. I command a blessing, and that blessing is life forevermore. There's life there. I command a blessing. I, I just want to remind us, again, this is a fight for unity, and really, it's a fight for the blessing of God. We want to be a part of whatever God will bless. And listen, we want the blessing of God on our churches, on our relationships, on our families. And so we have to war for unity. I want to be a part of what God is blessing. And God blesses unity. So I am encouraging you, my black brothers, my black sisters, my white brothers, my white sisters, Hispanics, Asian, and everything, black stripe polka dot, everything, we are warring for unity. And if we can war for unity, we can experience the blessing of God, life forevermore. I am not discouraged. I'm disappointed. Uh, I, I'm working through and processing a, you know, a, a wide range of emotions, but I am hopeful that we are moving the needle forward with conversations like this, and we are warring for unity so that we can experience the blessing of God. And I just love to pray, Philip, unless you are. No, that's exactly what I was just about to ask you to do. Pray, pray for us. Absolutely. And so, Father, we do, we, we pray um, that you would use this conversation to bring, in fact, I, I think there, there are generally a couple of responses. People will listen to this conversation and some people may feel condemned. And I just want to speak, even declare right now that there is therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And Lord, I just tell condemnation to go. There are people that will listen to this conversation and they will feel convicted. That is you convincing them that you have something better. We say bring on the conviction because we want the better that you have and we repent Father, we repent right now for our racism and our prejudice and our bigotry, Father. We repent right now, God, for allowing uh, some of these things to take place in our nation, for the lives that have been taken, for the division that has been uh, so prevalent in our nation, God. And we war right now. We war right now for unity. We war for oneness and connectedness. We pray, Jesus, that you would unify our hearts. And Lord, I also recognize 
that there are people that will watch this that are triggered, that they think about their past experiences. Holy Spirit, we invite you to heal and to minister and to bring freedom in the name of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for our nation right now. I pray for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit. I pray that we would be known by our love for one another. I pray, Father, that you would heal our land in Jesus' name. God, we choose right now to be, in fact, we just invite a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit so that we can be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all over the world. We thank you, God, that you are calling the church to stand up to be your hands and feet. And we say yes and amen, Lord, send me, as Isaiah said, and we will go in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, thank you so much once again, Jelani. Absolutely. Uh, your words, your words mean so much to me, and they're meaning so much to our community. So we love you. We appreciate you. Thanks for being with us. Love you, brother. See you, man.